You're listening to the Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Hey everybody, welcome to this episode of the Bible for Normal People, and our topic today is, so when did white Christian America lose its mind? And our guest is Xavier Pickett. Yeah, Xavier is a visiting assistant professor at NYU. And he had a lot of good things to say about white Christian America. I mean, the word, I, I don't know if he used the word at all during the interview, but I kept thinking like systemic racism and how deep it is. And he gave a lot of insight about like the Civil War and how the Bible was used and stuff that, you know, you think some of this stuff might be more recent, but the black church has been thinking about this and black theologians have been thinking about this for a long time. That's what I kept thinking is how much we have to learn from. We talk about these ancient writers and St. Augustine and these people who've been thinking about it a long time. Well, in this modern conversation of race and the Bible, it's not like these are new things. It's just, do we actually want to take the time and effort to find black authors mm-hmm. who have lots of things that could, they could teach us about this particular moment and how our conversations in the Bible and the church have been shaped by things that happened a few hundred years ago. And our tone deafness to all that, that's part of, you know, white privilege and that systemic racism, even if we don't mean it, it's the fact that it's not on our radar screen is a problem all to itself. Well, Xavier talks about willful ignorance. And I think there's something, mm-hmm. there's really something important to that. I think was Upton Sinclair said something about like, it's really hard to understand something when so much rides on you not understanding it. Yeah. And I think that's, it's, it's easy to be ignorant of things when it's helpful for you not to understand it. Not to search it out. the world and how you look right. at yourself and the universe you live in, yeah. Well, good. Well, let's have this conversation with Xavier Pickett. Scripture will seem to suggest that the Bible is a pro-slavery document, that you actually have to work extraordinarily hard to read the Bible otherwise, and not just read the Bible, to actually understand how would people even at that time have a different view. It's not until very recent history that we have any human rights and equality. And so we can think about women, it's property. It's really hard to get a view of the Bible that that seems to suggest that the Bible is an abolitionist text. You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Well, it's that time, folks. It's time for us to talk about microdosing. Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. Microdosing can help you get into a relaxed, focused zone easier and stay there longer. It has benefits for workout recovery, sleep, anxiety relief, boosting creativity, and even pain relief. You know, Jared, I have a really good friend of mine who saw that I was taking microdose gummies and she said, can I try some? And so I gave her some of the sativa strand and she said it has made such a difference for her at work and just in general, just feeling more alert and more focused. And it's quite amazing. So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com. Promo code normal people. That's one word. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com. Promo code normal people for 30% off and free shipping. Microdose.com. Promo code normal people. 
Welcome, everyone, to this episode of the Bible for Normal People. And today we have Xavier Pickett. So welcome, Xavier. Thank you so much for being on with us. Uh, thank you guys for having me. Absolutely. So we want to start, as we often do, by basically we want to know what turns ordinary, normal folks like you into nerds. So just walk us through <laughs> a little bit of your religious history, your spiritual background, and and its intersection with the Bible that, that kind of leads us to where we are now. Uh, yeah, thank you for that question. Um, it's a really good question. The question I get, you know, quite often, um, and it's very interesting to be able to, to talk about that publicly, and so I'm almost being on a record. So, one way I can kind of begin is I, I grew up in uh, a religious Christian background in particular that took the Bible really serious, so much so that we kind of described ourselves as something like KJV only, you know, King James Version of the Bible, that was kind of the authorized Bible, that not only the authorized, that was the only text and translation that was considered the Word of God. And so, other translations like the NIV or RSV, those translations were, you know, looked upon with suspicion, not just with suspicion, they were all times considered not quite the Word of God. They were, wouldn't go so far as to say counterfeits, but some, some would at that time. And so, that was kind of part of um, my religious background growing up as a, as a kid. But eventually, you know, as I continued to study the scriptures and one of the kind of hallmark sort of passages for me growing up is study to show thyself approved. So I really took that quite seriously. And I was really so credit to the core from a very early age. I was that kid in the church who asked a question to the pastor and to other leaders about, well, if Jesus died on Friday and let's just say got up on Sunday, what happened to the other day? Because if it's if it's three days, you know, it seems to be a day missing. So, and I was quickly, you know, ran out of the conversation, and and in some cases, ran out of the building. So I was always asking questions about the Bible and about Christianity broadly, and so it eventually led me to to do a number of things along the way. One of which planted a church um, prior to going to seminary, while right after undergrad, from leading Bible studies on college campuses. You know, doing various sorts of trips, mission trips. Then eventually I decided to go to seminary to get some uh, former training because the training that I had been doing on my own, I can get that training a lot quicker in a, in a concentrated structure setting. And largely because of biblical languages, I was trying to teach myself Greek and I wasn't um, picking it up fast enough. So that was one of the motivating factors to kind of go to seminary because I wanted to be able to read the Bible in its original languages and not just to be subject to various translations, um, English translations. So I went to seminary at Westminster Theological in Philadelphia, and there I kind of began to sink my teeth into, well, let me just say something that might be helpful too. I get this question a bit, like why I chose Westminster, particularly being a black person in, in, in the U.S. And it's like, well, what? out of all the places you could have gone, why Westminster? Well, one of the reasons why I chose Westminster was at that time and where, where I was theologically is that I wanted to be at a seminary that had something like a kind of coherent theological vision. Because what I realized and when I was trying to decide about where I wanted to go, that a number of people at other seminaries, divinity schools, some of the graduates that is, and even current students I had talked to, there was a lot of competing views that I got from students at the same seminary and divinity school. And so but when I talked to people who had graduated from Westminster, a number of people, they had a similar and shared sort of like way of thinking about the Bible. And the reason why that was important for me, because I realized that 
there, there is multiple interpretations of the Bible. And so that we have one particular passage could generate several interpretations. And so that alerted me to, to the fact that, well, there are some things that we need to talk about that we don't often talk about. That is our presuppositions. And so, like, what are the things that actually inform our interpretation that actually leads to these multiple interpretations? And so Westminster at the time, through, you know, people like Cornelius Van Til, and kind of really taking seriously presuppositions and, and that end up becoming a particular sort of way of thinking about Christian apologetics, presuppositional apologetics, that was something that I was attracted to because I realized that we have to talk about our presuppositions. And because those presuppositions has have much to do with how we read and interpret the scriptures. And so I wanted to be an institution that, as they said at that time, you know, very much epistemologically subconscious. And, uh, and so I was really compelled by that sort of way of approaching the Bible and a way of thinking about Christian theology broadly. At the institution like Westminster had a shared, the faculty and, and, and the school broadly had, you know, similar and shared sort of like theological presuppositions, then the types of curriculum and types of classes and discussions would be a much more coherent as opposed to a kind of hodgepodge smorgasbord that one might find at other seminaries and divinity schools and theological institutions. While the smorgasbord, I'm not necessarily making a judgment about it, it's just where I was at that time, I would prefer and desire something much more sort of cohesive. Yeah, so what happened though, right? Because you didn't stay there, right? I mean, theologically, you you grew or moved or whatever since that time? That's right. And so part of that shift, you know, I was really interested in the, in the Reformed theological tradition. And part of what accounted for that shift is that I was really trying to wrestle with, at, at a broad level, what does it mean to be Black and Christian? And more specifically, what does it mean to be Black and Reformed? And so, and that really led me to begin reading and, to, and reaching outside of the Reformed tradition to make sense of that. And so one of the ways in which I did that was really to end up, I ended up developing and creating and founding a, a nonprofit. So because I realized that there was other black Christians out there who, who took themselves to be reformed, who didn't know each other. And so and who were also wrestling with these same sorts of questions. What does it mean to be black and reformed? So I kind of set myself really on a mission to really to really think about that conjunction and and to, in some ways, to make that conjunction, in some ways to get rid of that conjunction and to really to suggest, well, what does it mean to think about black reform theology? And that allowed me to, to see that that reform tradition has been inhabited by black people in particular sorts of ways, some of which is very inhabited position, that theological sort of tradition and those positions very critically. So I began to really trying to merge in my own mind, but also think about the ways in which other people have really tried to think the reform tradition as well as the black theological traditions of various sorts together. And that kind of allowed me to reposition myself in relationship to reform theology in more critical ways, but also in new ways. And that sort of gave birth to a new sort of institution, a nonprofit that I created, Reform Blacks of America, but also kind of gave birth to a um, an emerging, you know, intellectual um, vision that I had at that time. Yeah, I mean, you know, you're talking about a kind of uncharted territory, at least for a lot of us, with this black reformed. And how do you navigate these things? And and so who was guiding you in that? Were there certain intellectuals or certain authors or certain people that you found 
could be a guide for you in that conversation. Yeah, and so I was beginning to, particularly while at Westminster, but also a little bit before, were already in conversation with a number of um, black ministers and academics who who had situated themselves within particular like Presbyterian sort of denominations, you know, one of which is like Carl Ellis and those type of folks. And and what I began to realize is that that there were other people who were who were wrestling with these issues as well before me. And so and so but what I realized is, you know, in addition to that, more work, particularly theologically, needed to be done to really think about the complexities of, of the Reformed tradition and the ways in which kind of that tradition and the way of reading the Bible what had really obfuscated the sort of black theological sort of like ways of interpreting the Bible and the black theological traditions. You know, the black people within these sorts of denominations who were making significant sort of claims and demands on these sorts of reformed denominations and how might taking those things seriously actually give us a, a different understanding of the tradition and give us a different understanding of reading the Bible. What are some examples of that, Xavier? Um, you mentioned this obfuscation and different interpretations and, and people challenging these denominational standards or traditions. What, what are some examples of that? Yeah, I mean, so there are a number of um, black, even Presbyterian ministers, for instance, you know, even before the Civil War, you know, who situated themselves within Presbyterianism. You know, people like J.W. C. Pennington, Theodore Wright, you know, one of who in many ways considered, you know, one of the first sort of black graduates of Princeton Theological Seminary. You know, all of this is still antebellum. And then there's many people who came after that, you know, Henry Holland Garnett, who most notably known for the declaration and the profound sort of theological claim that God is a Negro. And in many ways, these questions and different ways of reading the Bible was precipitated around the Civil War, you know, and around slavery. And the debates that sort of ensued by Christian ministers across the country, um, and the colonies particularly at the time, around whether or not the Bible justifies slavery. And the stances that were taken by many you know, white Christian denominations were in many ways pro-slavery. And so the ways in which many black ministers and, and laity I mean, Christians will in some ways contest those sorts of readings of the Bible as being those type of readings that would suggest that that slavery is, let's just say, biblical, morally permissible, and those sorts of things. And so, so there's a tradition that wants to so wants to read against that a type of abolitionism, abolitionist sort of like biblical sort of reading that is in some ways is represented through an African American sort of biblical interpretive traditions. So that, those are some examples of individuals and, and ways of thinking that that kind of trouble how the Bible has typically been understood. And for me, that was really instructive because, you know, one can think about even Mark Knowles, that the Civil War is a theological crisis. While we can raise some questions about some of the other things in that text, one thing is really important to understand he lives up is that the country went to war over the Bible. Yeah. You know, and, and the way in which the Bible actually was reinforcing a type of claim about states' rights and these sorts of things. And so, and one can say, well, the South, to put it very crudely here, that the South in some ways, were more biblical than the North in that that the South, many Southern Christian ministers and, and theologians at the time were arguing that the Bible does endorse slavery. And um, and the North, many of them wanted to read the Bible in such a way to suggest otherwise. Yeah, it was, it's sort of like, I mean, my, my take on that, for what it's worth, and correct me, but 
In, in the South, they had more of a, what we might call a biblicistic reading of these texts, like here they are and that's it. And the North might have had what some call more of a trajectory reading, like, yeah, we know what these passages say, but the gospel as a whole is going in a different kind of direction. Is that, no, exactly. Okay, so so we have, there really is sort of a battle, not just for the Bible, but for how to read it. Exactly. And that's all sort of before the Civil War. Absolutely. That, I mean, that's news, I think, to a lot of people, that it's not a recent thing since, you know, maybe the early 20th century, but this has been going on for a while in our country. Yeah, I mean, because, you know, part of the worry that many in the South had, many of the Christian, you know, leaders is that they saw that the North was reading as we can say, extra biblical sort of principles and norms into the Bible, that certain views about like human equality, for instance, you know, that they were taking these ideas that are found outside the Bible as a way to read the Bible. And so in this sense, I mean, it raises a whole lot, whole host of questions around quote unquote modern sorts of readings, some of the worries about, you know, how to read the Bible from our particular vantage point versus the vantage point of the original writers and these sorts of things, all the things that you guys are, are fully aware. I'm not a Hebrew Bible scholar or New Testament scholar or late antiquity, so I must at least register that for our time together in conversation. Yeah, I don't think that's even necessary to register because <laughs> it's it's sort of obvious. That's my opinion anyway. But, but it's also, I think, I mean, there's something that seems like there should be named that there's something to that. It's kind of what I'm hearing you say, Xavier, is, is yeah, if, if you adopt a certain way of reading the Bible, then it's the almost the logical conclusion. If you start with these certain presuppositions about what the Bible is and how to read it, a logical conclusion would be to endorse slavery as a plain, quote-unquote, plain reading of Scripture. And for me, that seems to be troubling where that can be the conclusion you come to if you adopt a certain in some ways, people who have a certain hermeneutic or interpretive lens seem to have to do a lot more gymnastics not to come to those conclusions. Would that be fair? Oh, absolutely. I mean, because I can state this in more provocative terms, that the Bible can easily be read. And really, particularly, and this is the language that you just used is really important here to plain read scripture, what seems to suggest that the Bible is a pro-slavery document, that you actually have to work extraordinarily hard to read the Bible otherwise. And not just read the Bible, to actually understand just historically, well, how would people even at that time have a different view? I mean, it's not until like into very recent history that we have anything like human rights and, and human equality in the way in which we think about those things currently on the 20th and 21st century. And so we can think about women, all these sorts of things. I mean, there's property. It's really hard to get a view of the Bible that, that seems to suggest that the Bible is an abolitionist text. So, yeah, and that's true. Then how do we actually, you know, read the Bible? How is it the case that now we have a pretty standard and mainstream view of the Bible that suggests like, well, of course, slavery is wrong, morally wrong. And of course, the Bible isn't for slavery. How is that now a mainstream acceptable view? In other words, to reach to that, to come to that particular view, one has to actually admit to be aware of the types of assumptions and presuppositions that one actually possess as modern readers that we have as a, we're using these particular sets of presuppositions about like what does it mean to be human and equality and so forth and we're reading that into this particular text. So we're bringing things from outside of the Bible to sort of solve this moral problem? Absolutely. I mean the question around slavery in the Bible and various forms of slavery within the Bible raises not just historical and like questions around translation, but it raises a moral question. I mean, I think the slavery question really raises, it actually presents a moral crisis 
actually. And it's actually these sorts of like concerns that lead many African-Americans particularly away from the Bible or at least away from a, a typical sort of like mainstream sort of white and certain circles like evangelical sort of interpretation of the Bible that, that really obscures the kind of the moral stakes of this text. And so and this kind of what end up emerging when slaves, you know, enslaved people sort of get a hold of the Bible. And this is one of the worries about whether or not we want, particularly uh, white slave owners, whether or not they wanted to evangelize slaves, whether or not they wanted to teach slaves the Bible, because if many of them knew if they taught slaves the Bible, it could backfire. And so while on the one hand, teaching them the, the Bible can make them more docile, more obedient, you know, because we have passages like slaves obey your masters. But on the other hand, you know, there's other passages that seem to suggest like, well, maybe we are kind of like all God's children. Maybe we all sort of priesthood of all believers, that sort of stuff. Yeah, there is no slave or free, you know, in Paul. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. You know, folks, I've had allergies my whole life, and I never knew what to do with them. I didn't even know that I had allergies. But anyway, one day I went to the doctor several years ago, and I said, listen, I keep having a stuffed nose, and it's just my throat hurts, and it's horrible. And he says, have you tried Claritin D? And I said, no, I haven't. And he said, you have to. See, luckily, for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. This double action combination of prescriptive strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. You know, I've been taking Claritin D for my allergies for about 15 years, and it's been an absolute life changer. I can go for hikes without my eyes watering like a fountain. I can speak without feeling like a frog has jumped into my throat, and my nose isn't stuffed all the time. Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies, it's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different. There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary, where students are prepared for a call to ministry. At Union, you will find a diverse community. You'll find students from different denominations and professors who will listen to you and challenge you. You'll find people who help you find your own path. You'll find a school where financial realities matter. Union offers generous financial aid, and it meets you where you are with three different platforms for learning. residential online, and hybrid. You'll find a world-class faculty who will invest in you, a community long after you graduate that supports you and equips you for service and for leadership. Safwat Marzuk, who has been on the podcast here on The Bible for Normal People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener to the podcast, how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world and all of our work here at The Bible for Normal People. It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to upsem.edu or email admissions at upsem.edu. Well, you know, you mentioned you mentioned before Mark Knoll and his book. Well, the name of his book again is is what is it? The Civil War as a Theological Crisis. Yeah, I, I remember. I don't know if you remember this, but I remember one of our seminary 
professors said that like the crisis of the 19th century for quote the authority of the Bible, it wasn't German higher criticism, it wasn't archaeology, it wasn't Darwin, it was slavery in America because you can't even go to the Bible to find a clear answer on the pressing moral problem of the time. And that has led people, I think what you're describing, is it's led people to say, listen, maybe maybe the Bible is not set up to answer this question for us. Maybe we have to think about this. And what I'm wondering is, like, what happened to lead people to a more, what I called before, a trajectory view of interpreting the Bible? What what might have caused people to say, listen, we can't just read Bible verses here, we have to do something else? Yeah, that, that would be, a, you know, a really, you know, fascinating sort of study. I think, and, I'm, and I want to kind of think about this out loud um, a bit, if I can. That's how I write. Yeah, go right ahead. <laughs> I just sort of riff. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, I mean, it's a way to make the Bible more respectable, right? And so, that, in other words, you have abolitionist sort of movements and ideals that are taking hold and root within the U.S. and, of course, across the fund in the U.K., so, and I think, you know, many people in the 19th century and forward begin to buy into the view that, yeah, I guess we are kind of all the same human beings. But yet, the Bible not only describes a world in which human beings are treated unequally, but it actually seems to justify the operations and processes and structures to maintain those hierarchies. So what do we do? And so we have to come up, we have to read the Bible in such a way to get that sort of trajectory that you were just describing, to read the Bible as a way to sort of flatten out those hierarchies between human beings. And so, but the reality is, in the, at a moment in which we, those hierarchies seem to be flattened, there are actually other hierarchies that end up emerging in that process. And by that, I mean, at a moment in which we're all becoming all God's children, we also end up becoming white, right? And so all God's children actually end up being a sort of kind of... So in other words, the project of becoming all God's children is actually a deracializing project. Mm. But that deracializing project is a way in which they continue to mask and evade the ways in which whiteness actually is functioning as a type of universal sort of like standard that goes unarticulated, that goes unnamed. And so that this particular way of reading the Bible, that this particular way of being God's children, this particular way of being Christian actually begins to be the standard, right? And so this is how, to put it another way to illustrate this, I mean, how Jesus actually ended up becoming white in the process. So what, what I hear you saying is, it's okay, we can have a, a new trajectory and everyone can be God's children and we can read these things in as long as it can be baptized into the dominant narrative of whiteness. And that's the way that we can have this unifying structure. If it's all about unity, that's great. But then when you look behind the curtain, unity is actually just an excuse to continue to privilege the whiteness and not allow for this other diversity to emerge. Absolutely. And that has really gone unarticulated. And so I don't want to get too far off here, but in my class earlier today on American religion that I teach here at NYU, you know, we were talking about the Scopes trial earlier this week, revisiting it from a different standpoint, because we were talking about what some has described as kind of the end of white Christian America. And so one of the things I raise is that like, well, why all of a sudden we were considering white Christian America to be dead at this moment? How is it that that narrative even exists? And I said, you know, at around the time where, you know, the kind of modern, modernist fundamentalist controversy 
around the scope trial evolution and these sorts of things you know this was like a big deal a lot of sort of like ink was spilt obviously we know uh william james bryant died right after the scope trial interestingly enough so so there's a lot of con- contestation around these sorts of theological issues but around the time in which the scope trial was such a big deal there's this is also around the height of lynching and we know that there's you know christian churches and ministers and you know were involved in lynching after a sunday morning worship they'll go out and go lynch black people but why was that not a controversy? Why was that didn't reach kind of a crisis status in America? Why wasn't white Christian America dead at that point? Because it has read the Bible in such a way that these particular set of like moral issues are actually not even theological issues. And so there's something about the way in which white people have read the Bible in this country that refuses to interrogate the types of their own sort of like moral lives and in particular ways in which their moral lives impact the lives of other people particularly people of color broadly but also black people i mean because if, if that interrogation was to occur one might see that the moral lives that are presented as models of good christian living might actually be immoral lot might be Im- it might be immoral and so and so, so in this way it raises a fundamental question about well are these people really christian and and this is what the black sort of like theological tradition of various sorts here in the U.S. and various sort of African-American biblical interpretations really raising that. How is it that these people could still claim to be Christian and treat their sisters and brothers and other people identify as in various other ways immorally? Well, okay, so so tie this in because I, th- I think I'm getting it, but you mentioned before a very interesting idea that the Scopes Monkey Trial meant like the beginning of the end of white Christian America and I think I'm tying those things together that you're saying now, but could you be more explicit? Because that's a really important idea. I think I get it, but I don't want to be wrong. Yeah, so so part of I was just suggesting to my students earlier this week, that moment can be seen as like a death of white Christian America. All right. And so there's other moments. We can go, as we were talking about, you know, the Civil War and slavery, we can argue that to what degree did white Christian America ever really lived? Like, to what degree did, that, did it ever become a fully sort of like living organism, right? Such that it can be said to be really alive. Are, are you saying it was white Christian America was exposed for the problem that it is during this time? Yeah. I mean, that's one way to kind of, we want to like go back and sort of and read the history in a larger sort of context in the early 20th century. We can read like, well, while they're arguing about these particular like minute theological issues, while at the very same time engaging and other sort of immoral sort of practices in terms of their institutions, churches, seminary, divinity schools, like, and also at the theological level, right? I mean, where segregation, there was theological justification for segregation, theological justification for lynching, for slavery. And so what I'm saying is that we might be tempted to believe in our current um, moment, given the sort of the recent presidential election, to believe that, oh my God, what, what is happening in our country that these evangelicals and, and other Christians have just kind of lost their mind? Well, from the standpoint of African-Americans and a particular sort of like African-American sort of religious tradition and prophetic and political tradition, that these people have lost their mind a long time ago. <laughs> and so like this country True. was born out of people who have lost their mind and one could, might want to raise the question, well, now they ever had it to begin with. Right. So I hear that rather than sort of being outraged or surprised by the theological discourse or how we talk about God and how God endorses certain moral behaviors or practices or immoral practices and behaviors, we could actually look back and see that there's these certain moments where this has been exposed again and again. And the the Scopes trial is one of those moments where we're we're forced to see or to try and reconcile 
this interesting phenomena where the whole world's aflame, or at least in America, over evolution, and yet there's too much quiet about lynchings. Like, so we're, when you put these side by side, it sort of exposes this gross injustice and how the dominant people in America have constantly propped up their lives, right, through these narratives of how to read the Bible and never interrogating it. It's never to sort of question, where are we more like the Pharisees? Where are we more like the oppressors? Where are we more like the Egyptians? But we can see throughout American history, it's been more of how we justify and prop up the status quo. Yeah, and this is precisely what led James Cone, you know, the father of academic black theology, to write about the cross and the lynching tree. Because to really to talk about the cross in America for Cone, you know, one has to talk about lynching because the, the closest example that we have of the cross is lynching. So for him, that we can't understand the cross without understanding lynching, and you can't really understand lynching in America without understanding the cross. It was a form of execution, both the cross and lynching, for different sorts of reasons. You know, but in some ways, those reasons aren't all that dissimilar. Both Jesus and black people were seen as a threat to the state and also to particular communities, particularly those communities that are in control. And in this case, in the U.S., is a threat to white power, particularly in the early 20th century. You know, come out of this era of the so-called Reconstruction, where the country wants to kind of rebuild itself. And while this rebuilding effort is being made, there's deep worries about whether or not black people, if they really were to experience and participate in political civic life in the U.S., then that means it could threaten various sorts of establishments. And so there was an attempt to curtail and to contain that progress, particularly in the, the most well-known institutional-wise is the KKK. And that's just sort of like one sort of easy sort of example as this sort of like renegade vigilante sort of group. You know, that engaged in like all kinds of like terrorist acts, you know, because it was meant because lynching was meant to to terrorize black people. Yeah. Well, let me let me ask something, Xavier. I think this may sound like an obvious question to answer, but I'm assuming you're of the opinion that racism in the American church has not been taken as seriously as it should have been over the past, say, 100 years. It's this problem that keeps popping up, and we don't really talk about it very much, but it sort of informs so much of maybe what's wrong with white America, white Christian America. Is that fair? I mean, do you, would you want to put that another way? But that's just sort of what I'm seeing more and more the older I get. Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. Because part of what it means to grapple with, with racism, if what we mean by racism is something more than just interpersonal sort of like prejudice, if racism is is more than more than that, if racism signals something like the way in which I like to like to talk about beyond just kind of intent and and motivation of of a singular individual, if it's more than just that, and is actually about a larger set of like practices, you know, cultural sort of practices, really institutional sort of practices of like racial inequality and a really an investment and commitment to whiteness, right? And so we can see this from various sorts of ways from various like you know, European sort of immigrants, you know, coming to the U.S. I mean, at various moments in the, you know, 19th and, and 20th century is that, you know, from Irish and Dutch, I mean, eventually became white. And so that there is actually a value to become white. We see this legally, there's legal cases that we can cite, questions around one drop rules or interesting ways in which, so there's always been an obsession around purity, to put it in more macro terms. And so Christian churches particularly have always been trying to police those boundaries. 
police those boundaries, you know, theologically, but also police those boundaries in terms of their rituals, in terms of like their at, at an institutional level, in terms of who they admit into their congregations, who can be ordained under what circumstance, if any. While I was talking today in class, we were talking about religion and politics, and particularly like around the 2007 and 2008, around the presidential election of, two, of 08, around Mitt Romney. And that moment, you know, I meet the press where Tim Russell asked Mitt Romney about the Mormon church and how is it that, that the Mormon church, you know, allowed black people to be ordained in 1978, as late as 1978. But those sorts of practices and policies of anti-blackness have always marked white Christian churches from the very beginning. And so there's a desire over the last 20, 30 years, you know, it had a moment of kind of racial reconciliation in many, you know, white Christian churches at various moments. But part of what that assumes and it, what it doesn't recognize is that black people didn't decide to leave white churches because they didn't like white people, right? Or they just didn't decide to leave white churches in general, that they were actually kicked out <laughs> from the very beginning, right? And so so when people ask, well, why they're like, why aren't black people and white people and, and so forth and so on and various groups of people like worshiping under the same roof? Well, it's not because like black people said, well, we're out of here. We're going to go do our own thing. You know, because we've been enslaved. Well, no, it's like, well, white people said, well, we actually don't want you here. So I was like, okay, well, black people had to create their own sorts of institutions. Even though those institutions already sort of had been created in informal and more kind of covert ways, because enslaved folks who were Christian, you know, they were already engaged in various sorts of like religious practices and, and their own sort of building of it is what a number of uh, uh, black religious have, scholars have called, you know, the invisible institution. So it's an invisible institution that namely sort of like the emergence of kind of this black church that of course is not monolithic that have always existed and this is partly what created some of the shock and awe in the, of the 2008 election around Jeremiah Wright and Obama so uh, Obama had to kind of distance himself from his own church his own black church because most of white America was like they were shocked by Jeremiah Wright's sermon that that soundbite when God when Jeremiah Wright said God damn America and it was like, well, is that what black churches are talking about? Of course, they took it out of context. What was taken out of context is a, is a larger sort of tradition of black Christians who have been very critical of the U.S. and also of white Christian America along some of these sorts of lines. I mean, we can think about even uh, Westminster and his own practices of like segregation, you know, um, that we all have some connection to that, that institution. Like a number of these institutions weren't letting black people into, the, into their schools, for instance. But, they, but yet they claim to be Christian. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. You know, Pete, I've been pretty emotional this week and I was trying to reflect on why that was. And it turns out, you know, my best friend from college just died. My mom's been in the hospital and I just haven't taken the time to reflect and process all of that. And it's been coming out in all these wonky ways. And that's exactly what therapy can help with. That's really been my experience with therapy as well. I've benefited tremendously from therapy. And I think lately I've been able to get to the point of why. It's learning to look at your situation more as an observer from the outside instead of just reacting to things, just thinking about it and processing the information. I find a lot of the problems become more manageable that way. And that's what therapy does for me. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BNP today to get 10% off your first month. 
That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash B-N-P. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online, and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with that, their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee is amazing. They offer free plant consultation forever. We got our bushes in and you can tell I don't know what I'm talking about because I just call them bushes. But we got them in last night. And Fast Growing Trees knows what they're called. Exactly. That's the whole point. It comes with this placard that tells you exactly what to do like you were in fifth grade, which is the exact instruction <laughs> level that I needed. And it was very easy to follow. We loved the process. This spring, they have their best deals online up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com, code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. So what's what's the... What what's your tenor? What are you are you hopeful about this? What's the trajectory of the conversations that you've been having and the things that you've been seeing in because I, I can't help but think that, you know, maybe it's just because I've been in more different circles, but this idea of black theology and giving it more of a of a place and allowing it to start properly critiquing white theology and even having such a thing as black theology and it's not subsumed under this wider umbrella has impacted sort of feminist readings, has impacted how we read the Bible in relation to LGBTQ communities. And and overall, I feel like there's more discussions of how the Bible has been used to oppress and more conversations about how to have different readings of the Bible that actually liberate and open up the conversation. Is this a trend? Is this a trajectory? Are you hopeful? Hopeful that more people will take seriously black theology and... Yeah, yeah. Are we heading in a way that we're starting to unwind some of these uh, several hundred years of uh, intertwining the Bible and oppression? I don't know, to be honest. At the moment, I'm not not very hopeful because anti-blackness and white supremacy are in... I mean, these are particular sort of viewpoints and practices that are something like intractable. It's hard to give up these particular like ways of thinking and, and ways of organizing ourselves, both in, at more macro level, but also more micro levels. I mean, because to give up the powers and privileges of whiteness is to, I mean, it's, I mean, it's something like unimaginable, right? It's hard to imagine a world like, like exactly like what that would look like for, for many people. Yeah, when you're not in control. Exactly. It's almost like you have to die to yourself. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, this is precisely like some of the language that's found within black theology and a lot of like African-American letters broadly, particularly like, you know, Baldwin, is that it is a, a death and, and that requires a rebirthing, a resurrection, right? But that resurrection, I mean, this is what partly what Cone means that when he says that white people have to become black, right? And becoming black isn't simply about phenotype. It's about a new sort of like moral center and practice, right? A new way of relating to ourselves in non-dominating ways and ways that are not oppressive. And so, but to become black 
actually means a di means divesting oneself of whiteness. And so whether or not, I mean, many was hopeful that that was on its way in 2008 when when many believed that we were entering into this post-racial moment with Obama, you know, uh, as he understood as, as as understood to be this kind of first African American president. And, you know, shortly thereafter, we found out that the honeymoon, that this sort of illusion of post-racial America was precisely that. It was an illusion, right? Because what we failed to, to really take seriously, particularly like for people who are interested in, in the religion and studying it, in particular Christianity, that we failed to understand and recognize that who was actually on the VP ticket on the other side, on the Republican, who was John McCain running mate? It was Sarah Palin. Right. And so and Sarah Palin was clearly mobilizing a type of like Christianity that morphed into the Tea Party that eventually morphed into kind of a kind of birtherism. And we saw who became the figurehead of the birther movement. And that led to our current president. So it, it, I hear you saying it takes a divestiture of whiteness and white becoming black. Can you tie into like what are some ways I, I just can think of people listening to say I want to I want to better understand what that means especially maybe since we are the Bible for normal people what are what are ways that that intersects with how we read the Bible moving forward some maybe some practical things that people who are listening can do to better move this thing forward Yeah I mean I think one practical thing to do is read black biblical scholars pick up Cain Hope Felder's Tony the Road We Trod, you know, African American Biblical Interpretation. That sort of volume has a number of essays that that would be very instructive, written by a number of you know black biblical scholars or scholars who are thinking about the Bible from these particular lenses. That's one thing. You know, I know that's probably not the most satisfying answer, you know, to tell people to go read, <laughs> but I, I think it's really unavoidable. So, I mean, because partly what creates these sorts of challenges is just a lot of like misinformation. You know, not just misinformation, but actually a desire to want to be uninformed. That is to say, a desire to to want to be ignorant. You know, we could think of, and this is precisely what someone like Baldwin is really trying to fight against. It's not just that white people don't know. It's actually also trying to fight against the desire to remain ignorant. In other words, a type of willful ignorance. So in this way, like one has is actually trying to cultivate desires and a large desire to know more, not just for the sake of knowing, but also for the sake of actually to reorder one's self in the world morally, and that we can act more ethically regarding how we relate to each other interpersonally, but also institutionally, right? So that we all possess various um, degrees of power and authority in our own sort of like domain of life. So, and the question is how we use that authority, you know, in our families, you know, uh, in the workplace, in our affiliations and ties, in various civic groups. So we all have like some measure of authority and power. So we're not we're not helpless. So the question is, do we use the type of authority and power that we have to sustain and to fight against various forms of injustice, not just racial injustice, but, you know, all kinds of injustice and all kinds of like practices of domination so it's really being committed to that, you know, whether in a particular church, synagogue, mosque, temple, and, and finding we don't have to look very hard to um, live into these particular sets of ideals. While diversity talk is all the rage in particular settings, 
you know, whether in the corporate setting and, and higher ed, you know, churches in particular sorts of ways with kind of multicultural churches and multiculturalism. But all those things just reinforce, you know, in many ways the status quo. We just have, you know, more people of color in higher places while all of the, the processes and policies remain the same. Mm. So we just continue to, and in other words, to reinforce the status quo is to really to maintain a commitment investment in, in white power, white power structures and nominations, you know, or at least the conditions for domination to be able to dominate, you know, other other people who don't actually or who fall outside of or, or who might be, let's just say, I put it this way, for those people who might be more critical of current set of arrangements, whatever they might be, was in a workplace or, or in a political arena. And so because those people who are a bit more critical tend to be, you know, continuing to push on the side. But, you know, we can... Various people who are in power, they can we can do all kinds of things to make sure that that the people who might actually be our critics, and in some ways people might view them as our enemies, that those people actually should be the people who we should be talking to the most. Hmm. So yeah, I mean, it seems like trying to create a world where that actually is desirable as an end in itself, not just desirable because like if we have you know this kind of diverse array of people we can be more profitable as a as an institution as a business or or we can look like we or this business or, or organization can look more respectable it can look like something like a more sort of global sort of vision but those sorts of things just are committed to and interested in just the appearances the semblances of of equity while actually trafficking and all kinds of inequalities you know and so we just have to yeah. be I was to say this last part we just have to give up the showmanship. We got to give up sort of like just being obsessed with appearances, wanting to appear like we are better than what we are when we are not, and actually get on with the business, the hard sort of task of doing the divestment, doing the work that, that, yeah. that are going to make our organizations uncomfortable, and running the risk that our organizations and our practices and policies, if they become much more sort of like equitable and just run the risk that Maybe our organization might not exist anymore. Right. That's okay. Like we we actually might need less organizations, less institutions, right. you know, less sort of uh, whatever in order to have a better, you know, society. Yeah, tr- true deep transformation and not just appearances. You know, this is obviously a huge topic that on one level people might think it's talked about all the time, but it isn't talked about enough and we're, speaking of time, we're coming to the end of our time here. And maybe if you can just let people know if you're working on anything at this point or if they want to connect with you, like online or social media or anything like that, where they can find you. Yeah, I mean, I'm not as visible on social media. I'm out there, but I'm not as out there as as, as I'm a lot of people. But I can be found on Facebook if people type me in, type my name in, and I can be found that way. I'm not on Twitter Maybe I'll get on there, but there's questions around sort of surveillance, you know, and technologies, you know, and these corporations that that warrants discussion too, um, particularly in our uh, religious communities, because there's much need, much discussion need to be talked about that as well. The ways in which some of these companies are targeting various religious groups and religious individuals. Hmm. Any projects? Yeah, so the projects, you know, working on two projects that are cooking, you know, slowly. So some of some of which is already some things have already been um, that are that are that are done but won't be released for a while. One is on black rage. So I'm working on a theory of black rage to get beyond that sort of like anecdotal sort of like an ad hoc analysis and thinking about 
the thinking that exists around the concept of black rage. So that's one, as well as I'm thinking about the category of black religion and so the, an academic study of black religion and how might we need to rethink that based upon African-American literature, some of the stuff around secularism, you know, stuff around sort of affect. So those are kind of two projects. One, one thing I could point people to if they want to get a sense of, of where I am and, of course, um, that some of what went into me, like James Cone, you can um, Google my uh, recent article that was published in Black Perspectives is the is the um publishing arm uh, of the african-american intellectual historical society the, the article is um very very brief sort of like piece on on the late cone because he passed earlier this year in april the title of that piece is uh honoring the sacred fire of james cone if people want a, another way into this and to think about the significance of, of james cone and and what i would argue and i think i might have said this in the piece is is the greatest theologian that this country has ever produced and so I'm willing to stand by that. And for those people who are interested in um, theology and, and what this country has produced in terms of theologians and, and theological knowledge, then to not read James Cone is to do yourself not just an intellectual disservice, but, um, but a moral disservice. That, in other words, I think one's moral vision and moral theological vision would be significantly diminished without really engaging very carefully and seriously his work. So that piece is, is there for those who are, who, are, who are interested. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Xavier, for coming on. And yeah, we really appreciate it. Thank you all so much. Um, it was good to be able to have a conversation with you guys. Again, it's been far too long. Same here, buddy. All righty. All right. See ya. All right, everyone, that's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening and supporting our show. We hope you enjoyed this episode. We want to give a big shout out to our producers group who support us over on Patreon. They are the reason we are able to keep bringing podcasts and other content to you. So big thanks to Amanda Baggett, Caleb Sharp, David Portillo, Hannah Paxton, Joe Johnson, Kristen Backman, Matt Stein, Peter Hack, Sam and Nicole Galambos, and Vicki Hansen. If you would like to help support the podcast, head over to patreon.com slash the Bible for normal people, where for as little as $3 a month, you can receive bonus material, be part of an online community, get course discounts, and much more. We couldn't do what we do without your support. Our show is produced by Stephanie Spate. Audio engineer was Dave Gerhardt. Creative director, Tessa Stoltz. Community champion, Ashley Ward. And web developer, Nick Striegel. For Pete, Jared, and the entire Bible for Normal People team, thanks for listening.